If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I was in Cornwall last week. I had a lovely time. I went to Lanhydrock and I went to St. Uh, Michael's Mount and Castle Drogo. Castle I, Drogo. I, I, oh, yeah. Castle Drogo, man. Have you have you been there? Has anyone no. been there? It's just got such a great name. Castle Drogo. One does not simply walk into Castle Drogo. You have to follow the path. So it was, I'm going to say it was built in the 1920s and 30s, designed by Lutchens, responding to his American patron's desire for a new castle. So it's this Art Deco castle um, with a sort of 1930s flat roof, as a result of which it's, it's, uh, the water has been leaking in for the last 90 years, and it's just undergone a nine-year restoration process. But it's very peculiar. It's like when you walk into the main hall, it's these incredible Lutchen spaces but it's but none of the flagstones or the or the the ramparts are worn down or old. Everything's basically as new. It's a very odd experience. And then within it, you've got these kind of country house rooms, these cosy little rooms within these these this castle environment. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was the sort of thing, as we said on Lot Listed, that. Uh, Andy Miller would do, and and he did do it. I did do it. It was really fun. It was really really fun. Uh, David, where 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 are you? You said you were in the country. I mean, where I am. I'm in a secret location that I can't divulge. <laughs> in the country, are you? Are you hiding out? But it's my little bolt hole that, that we go to, and so I do genuinely not tell anyone where it is. Really, really. No, I mean, it's in East Anglia. Um, uh, it's, it's really nice. It's really it's lovely. Broad enough for us. Yeah, and uh, and uh, it just kind of gives gives me a break from the the mayhem of industrial television and the city. It makes you seem so kind of uh, elusive as well. I'm not going to tell anyone where I am. I could be I could be Spider Man, or I could be in my bolt hole. It is. It's very good. It's particularly good if it's sort of the wind and feel that the world might possibly catastrophically collapse. And you wouldn't know. You just quietly look after your vegetables. And David does look like he's calling us from the room at the end of 2001, incidentally, everybody. <laughs> That's something to do with the wide-angle lens on this. I and mean, it's actually a very small room. But the wide-angle lens does make it look very cool. Look like Leonard Rosterton might appear uh, in, the, in 2001, might be just coming down the <laughs> yes. corridor in his suit. Now, there's the thing. Leonard Rosterton, the star of 2001, I think, he, as far as we're all he concerned. He is so good in that. I, I love him asking yeah. those questions. Oh, dear. 
Oh, that's David set the tone already. We've managed to get a Leonard Rossiter mention and we haven't even started the podcast yet. <laughs> well done. Well done, everybody. Rising damp for Castle Drogo as well. So um, so there we are. Perfect. Shall we crack on? Let's Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us standing on the outskirts of a sleepy English village in the mid-1950s. It is the morning of 27th of September and we're looking across a field of stubble towards the spire of the village church, just visible through a stand of elm trees. Smoke from the village spirals upwards, but there are no birds in the sky. In the pasture to our left, a small herd of cows lie motionless, apparently sleeping. We open the gate to look more closely, when suddenly our sight begins to blur. Dun, dun, dun. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we're joined by a guest making his backlisted debut, David Farr. Hello, David. Hi there. Hi. From a mystery location. (laughs) Um, David is a writer and director for Page, Stage and Screen. He began his career in the theatre. He was artistic director of London's Gate Theatre and the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith, where he directed productions of Kafka and Harold Pinter. He is also director at the National Theatre and Young Vic, and was associate director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. He has more recently moved into screenwriting his first feature film, Hannah. David later adapted the film into a three-season television series for Amazon Prime. One of the reasons we wanted David to come on here before we get to the actual book is he has a history of adapting a wide range of source texts, which include the UN inspector, Gogol, Metamorphosis Kafka, as mentioned, Crime and Punishment in Dalston. Quite proud of that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. And his adaptation of John le Carré's novel, The Night Manager, which I'm sure lots of people listening to this will have seen, starring Hugh Laurie and Tom Hiddleston, aired on BBC One in 2016. A total of 9.9 million people tuned in to watch the series finale and the show earned multiple awards and nominations. He's also, listeners, a man who adapted Philip K. Dick's story, The Impossible Planet. You've really covered um, the, all the bases there, I pretty know. much. I've, I'm, I've, I've colonised adaptation from slightly maverick texts, I think. That would be vaguely <laughs> how I would describe it, yeah. Did you find, with one of the things about Philip K. Dick as a prose stylist, if we can just digress immediately, <laughs> is, is he's like, he's ever so good at ideas and very, very bad at dialogue. Is that something you were aware of going into that? Are you were you a fan of Philip K. Dick, and is that something you had to work on? I'm not. I wasn't a fan of Philip K. Dick. I, I, almost for that reason, I don't think I love his writing, but he's he's a wonderful conceptualist and a brilliant mind and philosopher. Um, and to be honest, I don't care at all if his dialogues rubbish because I'm I'm not going to write his dialogue. I'm going to write my dialogue. Where what you want as 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 an adapter is you want a story. That just works. That someone has just had a wonderful idea. In fact, I'd say to be honest, the Impossible Planet and Midwich Cuckoos have deep similarities in that regard. That you can probably tell the idea to a child in about thirty seconds, and someone will get quite, they'll get excited. And once that initial idea is there, I tend to kind of, we, you know, we'll talk about this in detail in, in a minute. But I tend to go off on my own a little bit, at least a bit, because I feel that's the job. You know, I feel like otherwise, it's you, you might as well just read the book. You know, it's, I, I love books. I don't want to. I want to do something that's, that departs to some extent. And then, of course, because I, hopefully because you love the book, it also stays truthful. 
Well, fortunately, we can have both. Or in the, in the case of this, several versions, which is, uh, we'll get onto the Midwich Cookies in, in, in a minute. David's first book for children, The Book of Stolen Dreams, was published to acclaim last year and comes out in paperback this September. And backlisted listeners may care to know uh, we have a, a, a motto on this show, the best books are books about books. And uh, <laughs> as luck would have it, yeah. the Book of Stolen Dreams yeah. is about books, isn't it? It is so much about books. It's about, it's about a very strange and magical book. And these uh, brother and sister uh, suddenly end up with it because their father is rather brutally arrested and taken to a camp by this evil dictator who runs the country. And they have to figure out why it's so important. And it's, it's, all, it's about life and death and family. The book has a, a very secret ability to make to, to allow you to cross from one space to, to another, from the land of the living, essentially, to the, what's, what in the book is called the hinterland, but it's kind of the land of the dead, if you like. Yeah. This great. It comes out of my great love of, 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 in fact, not really even children's literature, but kind of all those wonderful turn of the century. I've, I've got a German-Jewish family on my mother's yeah. side, and that's very important in the book. And it comes out of loving love of Hesse, and particularly Stefan Schweig, and all these kind that kind of world where... Stefan Schweig for kids. What, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, actually, Wes Anderson, the filmmaker, did sort of do that with Grand Budapest yeah. Hotel, and I yeah. and I took my kids, and they just loved it so much because mm-hmm. because it sort of was a simple world. It was kind of yeah. strangely nostalgic, and yet at the same time, it didn't feel old fashioned. It felt modern, and that actually probably quite inspiring to me when I wrote the book. Just thinking about the way in which he, as a filmmaker, manages to do that. Yeah, wonderful. He's uh, yeah, I love Stefan Schweig. The Book of Stolen Dreams is available from the backlisted.org bookshop.org <laughs> bookshop and your latest play A Dead Body in Towers performs at Wilton's Music Hall in London and on tour this autumn but of course the reason we are specifically delighted that you're here is that you have adapted John Wyndham's The Midwich Cuckoos it's just premiered on Sky starring Keely Hawes and our former guest Sam West and we've been watching it what a treat this has been over the last week. Really nice. Rinsing Wyndham on screen and on in print. It's been absolutely yeah. brilliant, hasn't it, Johnny? Yeah, we loved it. Absolutely loved it. And um, oh, I'm very pleased. As you say, what you need is a great story. Um, and The Midwich Cuckoos is a great story. It was um, by John Wyndham. It was first published by Michael Joseph in 1957, the fourth in a series of hugely successful science fiction novels, which began with Day of the Triffids in 1951 and made Wyndham a household name. They've never been out of print, these books. It's been adapted for film and television and radio numerous times, most famously probably in the Wolf Rilla 1960 classic film Village of the Damned. The book was disparaged later on in the 1960s by fellow sci-fi writer Brian Aldiss as an example of cosy middle-class catastrophes. But in recent years, there's been something of a critical revaluation, with Margaret Atwood calling it Wyndham's chef d'oeuvre, and adaptations like Dan Revolato's for radio. Hello, Dan. Yeah, thank you, Dan, in 2003. And, of course, David's current seven-part serial on Sky, where there are layers of moral ambiguity and dramatic complexity that maybe previous generations of readers had missed. Anyway, before we roll up our sleeves and start weighing up the ethical and biological implications of xenogenesis, (laughs) Andy, what have you been reading this week? 
Is that what we're doing today? Okay. Uh, oh yes. <laughs> be fine. Yes. Um, Impregnation by foreign by foreign yeah. species. All... Well, I was I was down in Cornwall as I was saying a moment ago. So on my way out of the house last week, I grabbed a book, knowing actually not very much about it, other than that it was set in Cornwall. <laughs> and that book was The Feast by Margaret Kennedy. Ah, Margaret Kennedy. Which was published last summer by uh, Faber and Faber with a very um, Kath Kidston-y cover. Uh, very and summary. Word, and the words Cornwall Summer 1947 on the front. So I think <laughs> they, they know who they're going after with that. But anyway, they got me. And um, uh, it's this is the third of Margaret Kennedy's novels that I've read. Um after Becky Brown and Nora Perkins talked about Troy Chimneys on episode 109. Yeah. And, of course, Alexandra Pringle brought the constant nymphs to us a few episodes later in episode 113. And one of the things about Margaret Kennedy is um, no two of her novels that I've read are anything like one another. So this, can't, this one is, is from 1950. I think it's like her 12th novel, maybe. It's set in the Pendizac Manor Hotel in Cornwall at midsummer 1947. And according to Cathy Rensenbrink's excellent uh, introduction, the idea of it stems from Margaret Kennedy's trying to create a set of characters, each of whom represented a different deadly sin. So you think you're reading, um, forgive me, John, a cosy middle-class catastrophe. Thank you, Brian, all this. <laughs> but actually, you're reading something quite strange. As it went on, I was thinking, this book's much weirder than I thought it was going to be. I reckon those Kath Kidston buyers might be slightly taken aback by what's happening in this book. So I would describe it as a cross between the following. And I'm this, there's, no, I'm not, there's no irony here. It's a cross between Agatha Christie, uh, The Fortnight in September by R.C. Sheriff, which is a great favourite of ours here, one Fine Day by Molly Panter Downs, terrific novel, and Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, <laughs> which <laughs> something yeah, I'm not, I'm not a combination that you often see together, Molly Panter Downs and Ingmar Bergman, but there is, as it goes on, it becomes stranger and more symbolic and has a really haunting denouement um, where I couldn't even swear to you, I'm sure, what what happened um and indeed kathy says in her introduction that um she says brilliantly the feast is so full of pleasure that you could be forgiven for not seeing how clever it is and actually it did remind me um reading Wyndham this week there is a sort of post-war thing going on there's a kind of what is the post-war settlement? How do the various classes from strata of society, how are they going to reach an accommodation? What are the forces that are shaping uh, the relationships between the classes? They're, they're, those things are all in, in this book. Anyway, I just want to read you one little bit, which gives you a very good flavour of how this is a little bit more uh, unexpected uh, than I thought it might be. We're about to meet a lady novelist called Anna, who has persuaded a girl called Hebe to come with her to her friend Polly's house, a few miles' drive from the hotel. Anna pushed open a green door in a very tall white wall. The garden went uphill in a steep succession of grass terraces and a flight of stone steps up the middle. At the top stood the house. And on the bottom terrace, two people were lying on the grass, sunbathing. They lay on their faces, 
and they wore slacks. They had such curly hair that Hebe supposed they were girls, until as she and Anna went past, they sat up revealing masculine torsos. Oh, Anna, said one of them, have you got any cigarettes? We've run out. Only enough for myself, said Anna. Is Polly up at the house? I expect so. Where's Bruce? Anna laughed and took Hebe up the steps of the house. At the top, they had a fine view of the harbour and the roofs of lower houses, and then they walked through a long window into a room full of people who looked all alike to Hebe until she had begun to sort them out. They were not young, and they were not old. Most of them wore slacks, so that it was different to tell in several cases whether they were men or women. They did not seem to be particularly pleased to see Anna, but they stared at Hebe. Presently, Polly, who had red hair and was unmistakably female, asked who she was. This, said Anna, pulling her forward, is Hebe. She's staying at my hotel and I've brought her along because she's in the doghouse over a slight case of murder. This was received with some animation and an old gentleman, who was certainly not an old lady, came forward and shook Hebe by the hand. Hebe made the little curtsy she had learnt in America but could not get her hand away until Anna intervened and told him that Hebe was only there to be looked at. Oh, my God, said Polly crossly. I draw the line at infant murderesses. <laughs> Who did she murder? asked several voices, and somebody gave Hebe a drink. She'll be no trouble, declared Anna. She can play with Nicolette. Nicolette's not here, darling. Her father has got her. Listen, Anna, I've had a letter from the landlord. The drink was like nothing Hebe had ever tasted. Her head spun after a couple of sips. Their voices became booming and indistinct so that she could not be quite sure of what she heard, but it seemed to her that Polly had used one of the words. There were three or four of the words, and she had seen them written up on walls, but had never been able to find out what they meant, only that nobody ever used them, and that the people who wrote them up were not agreed as to the spelling. Presently, Polly used it again, quite unmistakably, and then she used another by the time that she had finished describing her landlord's letter, she had used them all, and several which Hebe had never seen written up. But nobody seemed to be surprised, and presently someone asked again about the murder. <laughs> I love it. I Isn't get, that um... Brit? That's, and that, let me tell you, everybody, comes out of relatively nowhere. Yeah. You've, you've been bowling along on this quite strange murder mystery stroke social contract and then suddenly there's this efflorescence of debauchery in Cornwall so yes that's The Feast by Margaret Kennedy that's published by Faber and Faber £9.99 John what have you been reading this week? Well I recently was in your neck of the woods Andy at the Wealdon Festival yes uh, which is very lovely up on the up on the in a very nice uh, country house lots of lots of lots of nature writing going on there um, and lots of uh, other good stuff. But my eye was drawn to a series of titles um, by a publisher I'd previously not heard of called Hazel Press. I was drawn to them because they were really, really beautiful, small volumes of mostly poetry, but some essays. Uh, I was also drawn to them because one of the books was by Julia Blackburn, who's one of my favourite writers. Mm. I was also drawn because this, if you will probably recognise, Andy, this is by... Uh, uh, by the great designer, book designer oh. from the 1990s, Jeff Wilson, who did all of... Yes, um, of course. Bloomsbury. Captain Corelli, all of Louis de Bernier and many yeah, other books yeah. as well. So Hazel Press uh, formed in, started in lockdown. One woman, 
a van that she drives around literary festivals. The the books are beautifully mm. produced, beautifully yeah. designed. They don't have any blurbs. They're all £10 each. They're amazing names, as well as Julia Blackburn, Martin Shaw, you know, the, the, the storyteller who I love, Helen Mort, the poet, yeah, Katrina yeah. Nomi, Ella Duffy, Carol Ann's daughter, um, Edmund Duval, you know, Hair with Amber Eyes. It's, she's she's gathered together an extraordinary list very, very quickly of beautiful, I think, wonderful books. The, the one I was going to just just read very briefly from was the Julia Blackburn book. It is 40 fragments, I think, probably taken from her notebooks. Julia Blackburn should just say, I think one of the still one of the most underrated and brilliant English writers uh, started in the 90s with Daisy Bates in the Desert. She's done nonfiction. She wrote an amazing book about John Crask, the, the painter who used needlework in, uh, to, to, to construct his, his artworks in, in, in East Anglia. She wrote the book about Doggerland, Time Songs. She did an amazing uh, memoir called The Three of Us about her bohemian upbringing. This is kind of fragments shawled against whatever old age. Here we go. I'll read three of them for you, four of them. I'm 73. My father died at 61 on the night of my 29th birthday. My mother died at 82, holding on for just a bit longer, she said, to get past April Fool's Day. My husband died in the first moments of turning 76, and even that death is almost eight years ago now gentle departures that between them carry much of the story of my life. Two, the days are filled with the thoughts of the end of days, apocalyptic horses on the gallop, eyes wide, sparks from their hooves set the forests alight, steam from their nostrils melts the ice fields, sweat runs down their flanks to join the salty oceans. I lean close and hear the hum of them like a heartbeat, quick and slow, then quick again. Three. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, someone said, that we would get it clear? I doubt it, said the rest of us, our faces filled with fear. Four. But then there's the child who hides under the bed and I pretend I cannot see her protruding feet until she emerges triumphant and laughing, and all is well. But then the robin walks into the room, proprietorial and tiny and unafraid, and all is well. But then I'm kissed by the man who's become my lover in this late chapter of the life and the kiss pulls a thread through me from my mouth to the soles of my feet and all is well. But then the moon is glimmering peach pink and unconcerned behind a semaphore of trees and all is well. And the last one, this is 17. 3.30 a.m. and the sharp cry of a tawny owl reverberating through the dark garden. The owl speaks of the night and of solitude and of the vast time of its being in the world way before we came along. Anyway, you've got 40 of those lovely, beautiful, beautiful wonderful. bits of... Um, it's just, it's really nice. I, I, you know, I love discovering new independent publishers and I just, I completely love a woman in her 70s who's just decided she's going to do it and she's driving and she's yeah, selling them into yeah, independent yeah. bookshops. So and they're beautiful. Tell us quickly, quickly, where can we, where can we Hazel get it? Hazel Press, you can buy them online at hazelpress.com. You can get them from the London Review of Books bookshop. You can get them from most good independents. She's not at the moment being distributed through the bigger chain. That's The Wren by Julia the Blackburn. The Wren by Julia Blackburn, £10. Right, pounds, and it's environmentalism, feminism um, and, and great, great poetry. We'll be back in just a sec. 
This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Adventure has its own style. It's made of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Consider for a moment the end of the world. Throughout the centuries, many suggestions have been made as to how it will come about and when. But few more sinister than this. These things, whatever they may be, have not only succeeded in throwing us out of their element with ease, but already they have advanced to do battle with us in ours. For the moment, we have pushed them back, but they will return. For the same urge drives them <laughs> as drives us. The necessity to exterminate or be exterminated. And when they come again, if we let them, they will come better equipped. Or maybe this might be the beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Who would want to miss out on the opportunity of Alan Wicker reading from the Crack and Wakes? No one. No one. <laughs> Uh, we're going to hear a bit more from that later on. That's a 1960, uh, very rare interview, a feature of John Wyndham on uh, um, tonight, I believe, on BBC. Yeah, on BBC One in 1960. BBC, yeah. David, before we we discuss any plot elements of the Midwich Cuckoos, Village of the Damned, anyone's version, including your version, when did you first? read a book by John Wyndham? Yeah, it's very important, this, because I was, I was uh, 12 and uh, the, the Day of the Triffids was on television. Uh, mm. and, and You're one with John Dettine. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was starring. As I recall, I've, I've dared not see it since in case I'm wrong. It was great. It oh, was, it's, br- it it's was, brilliant. Oh, good. It's still di- really oh, disturbing. Maybe I'll watch it again. Yeah. It's one of those ones... It, yeah, you don't want to watch them. Sometimes you watch them again. You go, "Oh no, what a terrible taste I had when I was twelve. But this, uh, but I, on the whole, actually, that was a good time for television. You know, whether it be Le Carre mm. or, or you know, like Guinness or you know, mm-hmm. um, other, uh, Dennis Potter and, and Edge of Darkness. But this one, I really loved it. So then I went off and found found other books, basically by him. Not not all of them, and, and I, but I read Chrysalids, which I liked. But the mm. one that just completely scared me so deeply was the Midwich Cuckoos and. I think it's because it's in that sort of little hermetically sealed town. And without going into the story yet, as you say, 
I was living in a hermetically sealed <laughs> little town. <laughs> it was relatable. And in fact, weirdly, when I then read Chockey, I discovered that Wanersh, which is literally three miles from my house, is in Chockey. You know, and of course, then I discovered that John mm. Wyndham lived in Petersfield. So of course, he he's he's all over. He's a, he, basically it was weird. I, I was in Godalming. And and one Ursh is around the corner and Petersfield where he lives. So it was really, I was sort of like, okay, I am in John Wyndham's world. And in fact, <laughs> the aliens are here. And then I started thinking in my slightly 12-year-old way, maybe I am an alien. Uh, or maybe the, the kid across the road is an alien. Because uh, he does that to you, Wyndham, doesn't he? He starts making you think, well, what if I'm an alien, but I just don't know? I haven't yet, you know, I haven't been activated yeah. yet by, by the consciousness. So altogether, this book, I couldn't sleep for ages and it it, it really um it, it was even and it's it's quietness. You know, you talked about that cozy catastrophe the cozy catastrophe thing that we yeah. you and Jabri and all this is criticism. And of course he's totally right. But for me that's the that's the quality. That's that's the unique That's what mm. surely that's the appeal. Yeah. Is, 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 that's is the skill. Yeah. How normal no, normality spirals out of control so quickly. And it actually makes it makes me a very very defensive of Wyndham in that regard because I feel like it, when America does cozy catastrophe it's cool like it's steven spielberg and it's stephen king and it's yeah. those you know wicket uh, picket fences and it's yeah. people rollerboarding or skateboarding whatever the word is along the street in the sunshine and and it's basically stranger things stranger things is cozy catastrophe it's really cozy mm. so actually mm. he starts all that he starts the idea that you can just live in this normal town it's very nice everyone's middle class no one's got any social problem <laughs> political you know and of course you can criticize that and say it's a particular world but in that lies terror and for me I, therefore it's a hugely influential massively influential book brian all this is being very grumpy there as well isn't he in 1973 it's i mean a, come on a like the whole as well. it's the whole it's a whole strand of british sci-fi that runs through Wyndham, Nigel Neal, exactly. Certainly into late 60s, early 70s Doctor Who, that they, one of the things they realised was particularly terrifying to children was if you made things happen in streets they recognised, in shops and their own homes, rather than in, you know, some fantastic alien environment. Exactly. And now it's called things like speculative fiction or, you know, there's all Mm. sorts of new words for this to try and not call it science fiction because people find that scary in some way. So he invented this in a way, you could argue. I mean, I suppose H.G. Wells has got a certain element of that to some extent. But I think it's a bit more close to home with with Wyndham. His stories are not quite so outlandish that that they they tend to exist through human beings, don't they? Often literally like Chucky or or this one. I reread a few for this and uh, I must say I thought Chucky was um, absolutely brilliant i thought that that stands up incredibly well i mean there there's lots to enjoy in the others we'll talk about some of them later in the show but but chucky i thought wow this is and chucky's almost his last is it his yeah, last it's sort of 68 when he's alive? I think it is his last published yeah, one it's his last one he was maybe writing stories but it's got to be the greatest imaginary friend book ever written <laughs> yeah hey yeah. i've got a question for you nikki you said that you rem- do you remember the early 80s Day of the Triffids. Yeah, I remember watching Day of the Triffids and then reading Day of the Triffids and not being able to have a plant in my house for about 25 years. Yeah. yeah. Genuinely, I couldn't live, I couldn't sleep in a room with plants. All his books are about a kind of uneasy relationship with the natural world, aren't they? It's a sort of, a kind of, uh, almost like sort of Darwinian nightmares. You know, he's so interested in in other forms of, of, of consciousness, um, uh, which we'll come on to with this book as well. But, you know, whether it's whether it's animals or insects in particular, 
It's a brilliant story of his called Consider Her Ways about a woman who wakes up and, and finds that she's inhabiting this kind of this body of a large, gravid female, and she's horrified by what's happened. It's a world where men have gone extinct, and it's kind of strange early feminist story. He's mm. there's so mm. much going in. I think a lot of teenagers, late sixties, early seventies, everybody read Wyndham. Yeah, I agree. He was still very present when we were kids. Yeah, and I I remember Triffids, and I remember Craig and Wakes, and I remember Chrysalids, yeah, yeah. and I remember. But I hadn't actually ever read until we were doing this podcast. I'd never read the book of the Midwich Cuckoos, and it's my God! It's it's <laughs> it's several million degrees better than I was expecting it to be as a as a novel. What's it about, John? <laughs> Nikki, we, John doesn't need to tell us, no, because we've got we've got audio to help us. So what we've got here, we're going to first of all we're going to hear an excerpt from the trailer of Village of the Damned, the. Uh, famous film adaptation of The Witch Cuckoos, and then we're going to pick up the story in an excerpt from the trailer of David's adaptation of The Midwich Cuckoos. Science fiction has never imagined so strange or terrifying a story as that of the village of Midwich, England cut off from life as we know it by some mysterious force. And later, at one and the same time, a child was born to every woman in the village. Children that grew to look like this. Beautiful youngsters behind whose fiery, hypnotic eyes lurked the demon forces of another world. They're not human. They ought to be destroyed. Forces put to such sinister use that it became a national emergency. We are gathered here as advisors, as scientists, as government experts. Have we established anything about the origins of these children? There is a possibility of the transmission of energy. Let me get this straight. You imply that these children may be the result of impulses directed towards us from somewhere in the universe. <laughs> well, I assume, listeners, you're gripped by the... Uh... <laughs> the, the acting talents of George Sanders and Richard Vernon. You know, you know that half the budget for the movie went on Sanders. Oh, Sanders' fee. Quite right. £20,500. Worth every penny. Every shilling. Trailers in those days were not understated, were they? They didn't do They that. were not. Now let's fast forward 60 years, 62 years, and let the new adaptation of The Midwich Cuckoos pick up the story. Oh, Hannah. Don't. Hannah, please. Mummy. What have you done? I can't sleep. And why can't you sleep? Because bad things will happen. Since 947, we've had a complete blackout. No communication in or out. We've got no idea what it is. I don't trust them.
Sweet dreams, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, it's terrific, absolutely terrific. So I, my first question is, let me ask you, I'm going to ask you two questions quite quickly. How long have you wanted to adapt it? This, specifically the Midwich Cuckoos. How long have you wanted to adapt it? And my second question, you've made a significant number of changes, one of which is Midwich is a village in the book, and you've chosen to move the location somewhere else. So could we... I'd like to ask you about both those things. First of all, so how long have you wanted to to do this? I wanted to do it in a sort of theoretical sense since I read it, in the sense that I, it's one of those strange stories that I saw very clearly. And obviously I've got one of those brains when I read things, I tend to, I, I see them sometimes if the story grabs me. Uh, then more specifically what happened was uh, I have a friend uh, called Rob Cheek, who is a producer, and I knew that he had a, a connection to the Wyndham estate and that a colleague and him were working on various mm. of the Wyndhams uh, because Wisdom Wyndham had slightly fallen out of out of popularity mm. a little bit. Uh, and they felt, I think rightly, that the stories had still had so much to say, even though he'd been emulated by Hollywood in, in, you know, in other versions. And I said to him, look, if you ever get this one, Midwich Cuckoos, I'm, it's, it's mine. And I, it was about eight years ago. <laughs> uh, I, I said it in a very proprietorial way. I think it was before Night Manager. <laughs> then Night Manager happened and me saying that was luckily a bit more useful because actually it meant that, you know, <laughs> rather than some yes, enthusiastic okay. Surrey boy, it was actually someone who <laughs> had a bit of history in, in, in making stuff. So... Lo and behold, it wasn't that long ago, four, three or four years ago, he comes back to me and he says, we've, you know, we've got it. And it was difficult to get it just quickly because Hollywood, the, the not so good John Carpenter movie, and I love John Carpenter. Because uh, that's mid-90s, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah, got, it's badly cast in Christopher Reeve and Kirsten. And they Alec. stuck with the stupid title. Yeah, they, they, did, they did Village of the Damned again. But it, of course, the first film was much better. And anyway, the rights got completely entangled in, in, in the studio yeah. system, as happens. And it took a long time, heroic work by a man called Mark Samuelson, to bring them out. And Rob is his colleague. And so that suddenly there it was, and, and available. But to answer your second question seamlessly, uh, it, well, <laughs> the thing about it when you, when, you, when you update something like this is, I'm really aware that people have copied this sort of story. So when you think about this story, you've got to think, well, what, why now? Why, why is it interesting now? And the idea of a remote village that nobody has contact with, and he's very careful about that in the book. He talks about the fact that it's, it's not really anywhere. It has no particular use. It's a strange anomaly. He talks about Midwich in this quite funny way. Yeah. But one of the reasons he's doing that technically is, is it's easy to not notice it's there. And so when this thing happens, this terrible you know, drama with all these women becoming pregnant, it's not impossible to imagine that you could keep it secret uh, and you could keep the blackout secret. And I realised very quickly that the blackout, something like that happens in modern day Britain, regardless of where you are. It's impossible to imagine that nobody would notice that it wouldn't be online in seconds and so on and so forth. And, and it felt to me that rather than trying to fight that, I should almost allow that to be a good thing. And then from there, I thought, well, actually, most people these days, the rural life feels somewhat nostalgic in a way that perhaps it, maybe it didn't in 1950. My dad was brought up in a rural village in Worcestershire. Mm. I, I wasn't. I was brought up in a small town. I think most people, that's, that's normality. So it felt to me like, well, if we're going to accept the fact that we're not in this remote, hidden, little tiny space where these strange things can happen unnoticed, if we're going to do something a little bit different... Why not embrace that? Why not go to a commuter town that's an hour outside London that is classic, modern Britain? You know, if people talk about the, the classic modern voter, it's always someone in a small town who drives a yeah. Mondeo mm -hmm. man, didn't it? So, so that felt to me like, uh, and it is, of course, personal. I, I was brought up in a town like that and I wanted to emulate it to some extent. By moving it from the country into 
the commuter belt, you you heighten, don't you, the sense of something gone very wrong. The fact that that as happens early in the book, the total blackout zone in and around Midwich, as you say, you'd expect it almost now, wouldn't you, in a village if you in in a TV series? It reminds me. I mean, we're not talking about movie, but the movies of M Night Shyamalan are what I didn't want to do. They're, they're always in a very deliberately isolated space. They're not right. They're not real. And in a film, it's okay. Uh, it can last a certain hour and a half. In a television show, you ha- it's like a novel. You have chapters and you need to get involved in characters you really care about and that have some recognition factor with, with yourself. I think, you know, his films, for example, I'm sure there are not there are sci-fi writers you could think of who do this. It's not the characters are not what you really care about. It's the concept. But mm. I wanted. I, mean, I knew mm. that mm. the character was was absolutely essential, and so it did. Yeah, it felt it felt right that we should embrace the modernity of it, uh, and and not and not try and cheat in any way. It, I mean, it's that, it's that thing, isn't it? Of, of of once you've got, as you say, you've got such a great plot in this book, um, and a lot of the certainly in the first two or three episodes you know some of the pleasure of it is seeing how you how you adapt that to, to, to modern to the age of the internet and, but you also make a big change with uh gordon zellaby the the um the george sanders character uh in the first in the in the in the film but also a big character in the book is you flip that into Susanna zellaby who's a who's a uh, a woman psychiatrist with a complex history of her own but uh that's an interesting. I'm just curious as to what 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 led to that. Yeah. Other than the fact that it's a chance to have Keeley Hawes, which is a great reason for. It, it yes, but it came before that. It was actually the first thing I I changed after having decided to shift it to a, into a sort of more conventional town was, and it wasn't because I I love actually the Zellaby relationship. I love their marriage in the book. It's it's yeah. it's actually strangely moving, and I love the fact that Angela delivers the speech at the at, at the meeting. Um, but uh, it just felt like if there's a flaw to the book, and it's and I don't flaw is the wrong word. If there's a particularity mm. to the book, it's that Zellaby does pontificate aloud a lot, a lot, and and <laughs> and he is and he's right, and he and and he's right almost endlessly. What's moving about it is that he's unsure what to do about his rightness, and so that's very touching. Um, but but I knew that on television, obviously, that's not going to work, and it does feel a little of its time. So I sort of went, okay, let's go. I suddenly had an instinct around wanting the opposite of that, a, a female um, listener rather than a male speaker. Uh, and so she's a listener, she's a therapist, and she listens to children. Her job is to listen to children in the way that most adults can't. And actually the little bit in the trailer where the child says, you know, bad things will happen, isn't it? We see that very on early on. She is good at her job. She's good at listening. The irony is she could, she can't hear her own daughter and she can't relate to that. So, and actually that's much more common in therapists than one might think, is that in the personal relationship, they really struggle to do the very thing they're brilliant at doing in their professional life. For me, I hope she still has the sort of priestess quality that that I think Zellaby does have a priest quality to some, you know, a seer, well, you know, that, that he has. Zellaby in the book, it, it's certainly clear by the end that he has, from a mixture of... Um, curiosity and uh, let's say compassion has forged a relationship with those children but the relationship that you might forge in the 50s in a kind of paternalistic somewhat didactic way you've got to find a substitute for now haven't you and therefore as you say it's it's 
simply by dint of listening rather than listening to I mean, rather than talking at. For example, he could have been he could have been a teacher, a male teacher yeah. in a school, a really clever teacher in a school. But what what that will never have now that the, the one has in the past is this strongly intellectual quality that Zellaby has. Zellaby is writing a book, as I recall, yeah. called While We Last, yeah. you know, when this happens. <laughs> Zell- and and he, he's failing to deliver it to his publisher. He's failing. I, I'm looking forward to doing it on the podcast. <laughs> point. I mean, good. he is basically Wyndham, isn't he? He is Wyndham. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. so if he's not going to be... If he's, sure. Yeah, you should do it. Uh, he's not going to be... If he's not going to be Wyndham, then I think you have to make a bigger shift than just, oh, he's going to be a male teacher because he won't have that almost mystical quality. And, and then you also start to get into the slightly strange thing, well, should a teacher have that relationship with children? No, probably not. Whereas a, mm-hmm. a female therapist whose job is literally, I mean, you know, to, to sort of see into, and there's that, it reminds me slightly of that wonderful uh, Ursula Le Guin story about the guy who's talking to his therapist about what he sees into the future and then what he sees happens. Do you remember? There's, I can't remember what it's mm-hmm. called. It's called something like, it's not the laser time, it's the other one. And and I, I found that book wonderful. And it's the way in which she does, she sort of turns the therapeutic process, which is so kind of modern and rational in some sense, it's supposed to be anyway, scientific. He, she turns that into a mystical thing. And, and, it, mm. and so this weird connection between psychotherapeutic processes and what we'd loosely call in the old days you know see you know, mysticism or or, or, or telekinesis that, that those two things perhaps they're not as different as we think yeah. uh, that interested me can i ask um john mentioned how much and you mentioned how much talking there is in the midwich cookies certainly in the second half of the 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 book that that people stand around offering I mean, I've, I, I found it totally um, entertaining and uh, gripping, I have to add. But they do kind of stand around offering you points of view on certain philosophical issues. When you're adapting, do you have to think, well, we can't have that much dialogue. What will I substitute for it? Will I have to extract plot from what's there or do I have to impose new plot? I'm unusual in, in a way as a screenwriter because I, I actively dislike too much dialogue. And actually, weirdly, that's the, with this book, that's quite strange because I do, I do feel that if another writer now had done this book, there would have been more people talking about the philosophical ideas than there are in my, in my version. I'm a bit averse on screen, not in books, on screen to too much articulation. Now, that may be a flaw in my, and maybe, and I, maybe I, I could have explored more. You know, I, I, I feel the piece is absolutely actively exploring the philosophical ideas around everything. And I, I, I really love very much the, the scene at the very end, towards the very end, where Zellaby, Susanna Zellaby finally talks properly to, to mm. one of the children, mm. which is my version of when Bernard in the book yeah. talks to the children, and it's really shocking. Yeah. And, and you suddenly realise how much more naive Zellaby is than the child. It's the child who's got the wisdom and totally understands. It's so true. Uh, it's so good. But also the children in every version... The book, Village of the Damned, your adaptation, we can't wait to hear from the children, right? That's one of the things that's being held back by the storyteller, that, that, that we want those guys to have that conversation, <laughs> but, but we, we, it, we wait and wait to have it. Don't you think, Andy, the, the genius of the children, both in the book and in the various adaptations, is they're every bright kid that's ever felt 
that they're oh yeah that, that they've ever felt out of place. I mean, I rewatched the film again last night. In the movie, they really try and amp up the sinister horror thing because they're trying to sell the movie in the states, which is why it's called Village of the Damned because they were worried that Americans didn't know what cuckoos were. Or mid or midwitch. Or mid yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah witches is not good. Also, I think you, the timing is not accidental. So this is late fifties, and the Village of the Dam, the film is early sixties. And what you're seeing is a kind of precog um, beat yeah. boom. You're seeing like you're about to enter the age of groups where gangs of rebels yeah, become the thing. Right? It's slightly ahead of that sociological explosion. With us. to me, the most obvious lineage is when those kids grow up, they're going to be in the Clockwork Orange. Ah, yes. Because Malcolm McDowell, 10 years before, was probably in the village of the dam, wasn't he? <laughs> Definitely. Yes, yes of course. Because that, that, that actor, Martin Stevens, more or less, who plays the, D- David, the kid in the book, in the book is, is, is more or less, he, he traded on that for, you know, he's still trading on this thing, he's still alive. Because of the, um, you know, that extraordinary kind of the wigs and the eyes, obviously, but also just that sense of menace that the kids definitely have. Yeah. Uh, but I so agree with you about the fact that every kid who's bright or a bit odd felt odd, thought they might be one. That's literally what I felt. Yeah. And I'm called David. Mm. Yeah. You are. And you have golden eyes, which no one here can <laughs> which no one can see. That is weird, man. And strange, anyway, I don't know why nails. I don't know why you were drawn to it, David. I I I've no idea. Um why don't we we've got some more of that really rare interview of John Wyndham. Um, but do you know what? I think I ought to read the dust jacket first before we listen to that. So I've got here the uh, dust jacket of the Midwich Cuckoos. We should say that um, John Wyndham had already published The Day of the Triffids, The Crack and Wakes and The Chrysalids. So he's a known author. Those had been bestsellers. Here's the jacket copy for the first edition of the Midwich Cuckoos in 1957. The important question... What should I do in case of interplanetary invasion? <laughs> Raises no less important subsidiary questions such as how can I be sure of recognising an interplanetary invasion if I encounter one? And is this an interplanetary invasion at all? Or is it something else? Although this story does not go as far as to solve such quandaries... <laughs> <laughs> classic, classic. Let me ask the question and not answer it. It does relate to an occasion when these questions as well as a number of others, arose to confront the inhabitants of the secluded, somnolent and considerably astonished village of Midwich. Mr Gordon Zellaby of Kyle Manor, Midwich, had few doubts on the nature of the events there, but even fewer practical remedies to suggest. He complained, quote, I cannot recall a single account of any interplanetary invasion that is of the least help in our present dilemma. Take HG's Martians, for instance. As the original exponents of the death ray, they were formidable, but their behaviour was utterly conventional. They simply conducted a straightforward campaign with a weapon that outclassed anything we could bring against them. But at least we could try to fight them, whereas, in this case, the Midwich Cuckoos were no less formidable, but in a different way, a way that precluded straightforward reprisals. Ah, that's good. Of all our English SF writers to quote a recent review in The Observer, John Wyndham, quote, seems the only one to whom the medium is the natural mode of expression. We are confident that the Midwich Cuckoos will delight his many readers. <laughs> that is such a strange blurb. Do you think, do you think? 
a little. I think it's I think it's playing the John Wyndham card. Yeah. <laughs> it's saying you like this guy. He's on form. It's I a little bit like an instruction. It says it like it as if the book might be an instruction manual on how to yeah. deal with interplanetary, mm. which is quite strange. <laughs> um, John, what do you think? You're you're a, a publisher of uh, well much expertise and standing. I suppose it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because having just read it, I I think they do nail the fact that there is a moral ambiguity in your relationship to what are they basically saying? The, the bad guys in H.G. Wells are pretty obviously bad. They've got death rays and they're destroying us. Whereas this is much more... The fact that we're all, we, we've all just confessed to having deep sympathies with the, the children. And I don't think any of the... I mean, I think the things that you bring out, David, in your, in your adaptation of the, of the, the, the Zellaby kind of confusion as to what to do and whether or not in either case, without giving the ending away to people who don't haven't read the book or seen the, the TV show, in either case, it doesn't lessen the moral ambiguity. And there's a there's also a brilliant thing that you pick up, which I I obviously didn't. It's not in the film. Is when the, you, the ice cream. The fact is how how although it's a hive, essentially it's a hive mind. These in the book, the sixty one kids all operate in a way that they can read one another's minds and they if one learns something the others all learn it simultaneously so that's an interesting and that's that's definitely Wyndham Harris or whatever he, his, he, the name you want to use for him that's his interest in science and in Darwinianism and it, particularly insect communities and different species and uh, you know who's going to who's going to win this that sort of post-war paranoia that all his books are full of but the bit where the, the, the in the in the book it's a, a bullseye, I think, that one of the kids is. is enjoying, and Zellaby's mm. noticing that they're mm. enjoying mm. the enjoying the, the, indi- as in, a, as the individual quality yeah, yeah. of either eating ice cream in the TV show or eating the, the 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 bullseye in the book. So they're not just that's the thing is they're not just a hive mind. They're not just the Martians coming to destroy the planet. That's in fact the brilliant thing I think about the the book is. You don't really have any sense of, of of it being an alien life form. It might just be a a more evolved form of of human. You know, there's there's, there's there aren't any spaceships. There aren't any there aren't any even spores like there are in the, in the Triffids. It's it's really subtle. I think you've you've absolutely put your finger on the key center of the piece, though, for book our book and any adaptation should be that notion around. The collective hive, which is meant to be one, and that, and in that lies its strength. So, whereas we will squabble and have different opinions about how to deal with the life, this this external force, they won't, and that's terrifying. And it it, it smacks of, perhaps it smacks of totalitarianism a little bit in the fifties. Probably for us, mm. I think it smacks of this new wave of populism or something. I, mm, but it definitely absolutely. it definitely scares me still now, living in today. But then that wonderful thing that, of course, they are different in taste. And if they're different in taste, couldn't that taste develop from just ice yeah. cream or, or or a sweet into a yeah. human being? And yeah. the, and then suddenly the notion of oh hold on a second they're living with a family. And and the, if the one thing the book perhaps doesn't explore as much as I thought it might when I read it again is the effect of living in family situations on those cuckoos. He he's yeah. almost like and I think Wyndham does this quite a lot. He sets everything up astonishingly. And then he, it's not that he loses interest, but he loses interest in certain bits of it. 
Yes, but he writes about what he wants to write about. That that's what I think is so fascinating yeah, yeah. about all his books. He sets up. You're so right, David. He sets up. We're we're probably still reading him because of the setups of his plots, not necessarily what he does. Where he gets setups. to. Yeah. I, the 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 honest answer on that one is that the ending of his book is a nightmare for adapting because the, there's this brilliant bit. The kid is talking to Bernard. The kid is saying, we're going to, we are the life force. We are going to destroy yeah, it. Yeah. But he says, maybe we could delay it for a bit. And then actually all they want to do is take a helicopter to somewhere like the Scilly Isles or the Isle of Man. And it's really rubbish. And you're like, really? Why do you want to go there for a bit? <laughs> That's right. You're absolutely yeah. right. In terms of the plotting, there is no, without giving away the ending, there is no convincing alternative it's like nobody seems to know what to do with these kids yeah yeah and yeah, obviously yeah. that's something that you did work on well for well, the, for I, the adaptation I, I would like to add that i one of the things i found really interesting revisiting Wyndham's books this week is the midwich cuckoos is the book that he wrote after the chrysalids yeah and in a sense the midwich cuckoos is a response to the chrysalids yeah. so in the chrysalids you see a group of young kids or young people connected with a hive mind but individuals who we root for and in the midwich cuckoos it's almost like he said okay i'm going to revisit that idea but they're the but i am going to posit the idea of that group of young people as a collective but individuals from not that we don't root for but who have forces opposed against them in a way that is different from the chrysalids yeah. I found that really, really fascinating. Very rich, actually, to read those two books together. Yeah, and there's no question that in Midwich they are the antagonist. I mean, you might be fascinated by by them, but they are absolutely, definitely yeah. the antagonist. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. They're, they're not the good guys. <laughs> this is from this rare interview with John Wyndham. Here he is talking about uh, what's appropriate to put before readers. Well, Mr Wyndham, your books all deal with evil and fantastic happenings, very often, usually, in fact, set in fairly ordinary situations. Now, do you consciously set limits on these fantastic happenings? Do you limit your fantasy, or is it a case of anything goes? Well, I wouldn't say they're all evil, but, of course, there do have to be limits. The, um, what one starts with is the theme, and then you work it out to the logical conclusion as far as possible but there is a, an upward and a, a lower limit and sometimes it works out so that the lower limit well is unacceptable it's it's unpleasant can you illustrate it well the the um the in the as far as the upper limit is concerned you you carry your in invention to a point uh, where it is acceptable to your reader. For instance, your English reader does not care for the idea of spaceships. I don't quite know why he does. Your American reader loves spaceships. But uh, in England, you don't. Now, in the, in the downward limit, some of the logical outcomes are not acceptable. For instance, in the, um, which was it, the, uh, the chrysalids. You see, you have a world that has been devastated by atomic bombs, and there are a lot of mutations resulting. Now, most mutations would naturally be pretty unpleasant, but one doesn't want to, to follow that along. I mean, it would swamp the whole story. So that, that one minimizes, one leaves out the, the most unpleasant ones, or even tasteless ones. For instance, there was, in the original, 
a point where a man had, uh, his hat was knocked off and he was seen to have a third eye on the top of his head. Mm. Well, there's no reason why I shouldn't have a, a third eye, but it just, it just has an unpleasant taste. So this was and, the uh, limit of your no, lower depth? On, on the whole, the story on. seemed pleasanter without. David, you weren't tempted to put in a scene where someone knocks off a hat <laughs> to reveal a third eye, were you? <laughs> no, but we did have good chats about... I like... I, I've never heard that. I love the... Uh, the sort of consciousness around extremity. I think that's, I think that's, uh, we did have long chats about explicit, explicitness versus impl- implicitness. Uh, temp- Go on. Well, no, tell us a bit more about that. What? Because presumably you're, the audience of 2022 wants more jumps and scares and um, a bit more gore than, than Wyndham would have been happy to deliver. S- but you want to hold something back, right? You want to yeah. you suggest things rather than show them. And actually, Strangely, the, my greatest fear about my show, to be honest, was I decided to take my time at the beginning and not to rush straight into the blackout like the films do. And I was very scared about that. But I felt like you needed, I needed time to introduce the world and the characters. And if there's a problem, even with the Wolf Riller film, it's, it's, that, it's that in the second half, the ca- you don't have time to get to know the characters enough. And in a television programme, that's a problem. It doesn't matter in the film. It's so, it's so impeccably directed. It's so beautiful. It doesn't matter at all. But for a television show, it does. Um, so I felt like I, I needed to take my time and go go quietly was the was the kind of a phrase, the motto, go quietly. And interestingly, I think that has been more successful than actually some of the more you know dramatic da-da-da. It's like people enjoy this uneasy dread that this feeling that they know something's wrong and no one's telling them what it is. No one is saying what it is. And I wonder if in our very explicit, explosive, everything's out there, everything's being stated and articulated age, I wonder if there's a really interesting space now for quiet dread, quiet, intimate, strange feelings that are unspoken, because it's been more successful uh, than I thought it would be in that regard. So, David, have you got a bit you could read us that you feel captures something of what Wyndham does in the book. Yeah, so I, I've i strangely gone for a Zellaby section, even though I then changed him so radically. <laughs> <laughs> he is a strange one around, we're going to go on to gender, he, but some people accuse him yeah. of being... Some, Wyndham. Yeah, yeah, some people accuse him of being misogynist. Other people think he's strangely feminist, as, as we were talking about you know, with, the, with the short story. And it's, it's a strange one. And I think here, he just... I, I, I like this bit because this is about him, a married couple, cut, getting to grips with a very serious problem. And it reminds me of talking to the mother of my children or it reminds me of other parents talking about their own children and the way in which you think about things. But they're talking about something so much more extreme at the same time. And I quite like it. So here we go. Um, Zellaby reached out and took her hand. After some minutes, he observed... I wonder if a sillier and more ignorant catacresis than Mother Nature was ever perpetrated. It is because nature is ruthless, hideous and cruel beyond belief that it was necessary to invent civilization. One thinks of wild animals as savage, but the fiercest of them begin to look almost domesticated when one considers the viciousness required of a survivor in the sea. As for the insects, their lives are sustained only by intricate processes of fantastic horror. There is no conception more fallacious than the sense of coziness implied by Mother Nature. Each species must strive to survive, and that it will do by every means in its power, however foul, unless the instinct to survive is weakened by conflict with another instinct. Angela 
seized the pause to put in with a touch of impatience. I've no doubt you're gradually working round to something, Gordon. Yes, Zellaby owned. I am working round again to cuckoos. Cuckoos are very determined survivors. So determined that there is really only one thing to be done with them once one's nest is infested. I am, as you know, a humane man. I think I may even say a kindly man by disposition. You may, Gordon. As a further disadvantage, I am a civilised man. For these reasons, I shall not be able to bring myself to approve of what ought to be done, nor even when we perceive its advisability will the rest of us. So, like the poor hen thrush, we shall feed and nurture the monster and betray our own species. Odd, don't you think, he continued. We could drown a litter of kittens that is no sort of threat to us, but these creatures we shall carefully rear. Angela sat motionless for some moments. Then she turned her head and looked at him long and steadily. You mean that about what ought to be done, don't you, Gordon? Hmm. I do, my dear. Hmm. <laughs> It's like, John, that's like listening to Herzog talking about nature. It so is. <laughs> I was just thinking about uh, the jungle. The jungle. I, yes. Timothy Treadwell looked into the eyes of the bear and saw love. <laughs> I saw only <laughs> hunger. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. That's what nothing it is. More, nothing, more, nothing more terrifying than the eyes of a chicken. Yeah. You must never listen to this. <laughs> That's wonderful, though. I think, uh, David, what a what a tribute to your skills as a as a, a, a an adapter of that the text that you left that out completely because, <laughs> because it's so great. But it sums so up great. the problem, doesn't it? She, she I mean, any any woman now listening to that goes, all she says is yes, dear, no, dear, and then of course, being a wonderful, highly intelligent mm. woman, she works out what he means at the end and yeah. sort of gets the punchline. But that's not good enough for our day and age it just doesn't work he is still lecturing he is still it's, ahead of the game i mean good though the zellaby kind of um monologues are that it is a lot of it, there's a lot of men pontificating in this book kind of bernard and and zellaby one of the other books that i read was trouble with lycan which is his last oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's that's the last of his kind of imperial run yeah in 1960 that's a very peculiar book i think i think our form our friend una mccormack has recommended it to me it's sort of a glorious failure trouble with lycan because it's you know Wyndham prided himself he's called it what logical fiction or logical speculative fiction and trouble with lycan is about if you developed a life prolonging treatment what would it mean for feminism? But because he's not one of life's natural feminists, it's it's a brave effort by by Wyndham, but it doesn't quite, you know, it doesn't quite come off. But I was trying to think, what other male writer would be trying to do that in 1960? I can't think of one. No, I think he's, I think he is strange in that way, because, and I think it comes down to this strange fact that he had this incredible but bizarre, frustrated love affair all his life. With this one woman who he couldn't marry for a long time because she, if she married, Grace, she wasn't allowed to be a teacher. It's uh, out of, it, she would be fired. It, it, that literally mm. was the law. I mean, that is so outrageous. But and he obviously, so he knew that. And I think there is something in him that he's not obviously brought up with the with the emotional language of feminism, but he instinctively feels it. And interestingly, even in Midwich, he gives the key uh, speech of the cuckoos. 
who are talking to Bernard later in the book to a girl. Uh, and now, of course, the, it, it's a hive, so it could be any of them. But it is a girl who gives most of it. There is a boy and a girl, but a girl picks up the conversation. And she says the killer lines towards the end. So, so I think there's something in him that is always pushing at yeah. that door. Um, we're gonna. I want to come back to this topic. We're just going to hear one last clip. Now, in 1960, um, uh, if you work for the BBC, you couldn't just say, as so many of us do to a writer, where do you get your ideas from? You had to present it in a different way. So, so here's another clip of John Wyndham answering uh, the question as it was expressed back then. May I ask you, Mr Wyndham, where it is that you rely upon, how it is you rely upon, and indeed what it is you rely upon for your stimulus? I mean, after all, you're dealing with subjects of fantasy which are outside our own experience. Do you simply brood and think of more and more evil? Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say they're all evil. You know, the, the Midwich Cuckoo's children look very evil in the film, mm. but they aren't so evil in the original story. No, um, sometimes one gets um, an idea thrown at one. The uh, original Triffids one, I think, came one night when I was walking along a dark lane in the country and the hedges were only just distinguishable against the sky mm. and the higher things sticking up from the hedges became rather menacing and felt that they might come over and strike down or if they had stings sting at one mm. so that uh, the whole thing eventually grew out of that the moving vegetable would be a real menace are you ever appalled by the fruits of your imagination um, oh, I don't think I'm appalled. Uh, once when I was younger, before the war, when I was trying to write uh, ghost stories, I used to, used to frighten myself pallid. Yes, but you got over that now. Oh, yes. Well, uh, these aren't frightening, I don't think. No. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mr. Thank you. I used to frighten myself pallid. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> lovely, isn't it? Beautiful. It's great. So I would like to ask you, David... Um, your adaptation, Midwich Cookies, it's just gone up. We can watch it now. Margaret Atwood has talked about the influence, as John said, of Wyndham on her work. For instance, The Handmaid's Tale, the relationship between The Handmaid's Tale and The Chrysalids. I wonder how you felt, uh, given that one of the major changes you've made to The Midwich Cookies is the extent to which you feminised it, because that's hardly touched on at all in Wyndham's original, how it felt about this distressingly relevant piece of TV being broadcast at the same era as the Roe versus Wade yeah. uh, uh, judgment. Yes, and, and um, it's very strange because I think the, one of the most interesting challenges was to was 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 to think about abortion, not and to. I mean, he he does it in the book. He's very interesting yeah, in the book. I mean, uh, there's a horrific section, isn't there, where a, a young woman mm -hmm. attempts to terminate her own child in a very unpleasant way uh, or, or does she try and kill herself i can't remember exactly she attempts suicide it's a horrific horrific section um and in our in our version we we wanted to really well essentially we decided that the hive should in this case be that populist voice yeah. that just ref yeah. absolutely refuses the, the, the woman's choice and we didn't really, we just did it. We just told that. And it's a good example of how I do things. There's barely a line of dialogue in that scene. In, uh, yeah. And I really like it. It's probably one of my favourites, that strange little scene in the clinic um, where these women who go in there with you thinking that they have free will uh, and thinking they have the right to make that decision. And suddenly some strange force says, no, you don't. And of course, when we were shooting it, this hadn't happened yet. And then suddenly it starts to become, gets in the news. And suddenly there's this, this 
phenomenal force of, of political power in this scene and in and that's I think where good great science, science fiction writing that's that's the proof of it isn't it that John Wynnum has suddenly landed right in the heart of contemporary America and that that scene will resonate in contemporary America in a way that we would never have done five years ago. I'm totally fascinated by the extent to which these books are seem engaged with what feels like a very topical debate which we've talked about on Batlisted several times, the individual versus the mass or the state or whatever you want to talk about. It's written 60 years ago in, and it's picking up Rousseau and yeah. whatever, but but you know what I mean. It's it's coming Hegel. around again and again and again, right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's, And actually, I felt that was one of the ways in which Wyndham came up shinier than I was expecting. It's it's true because he it's uh, you remember when we were talking about it before the episode that Wyndham was sort of talked about in the same way that Golding was talked about back in the fifties and sixties as an as not just as a science but as a novelist of ideas a serious novelist of ideas and I I I, I think that's definitely something that's that's sort of not because he was such a great a best selling writer he's. I don't think his. I think he was read by 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 kids, by adolescents in particular. But my hunch is that he hasn't been as read by people who he's not seen as one of the the the, the great kind of literary storytellers of the second half of the twentieth century in the well, way that Golding we, now is. Well, we should mention this book that was published in 1956 called Sometime Never which is a collection of three stories by now a trio of authors we've covered on Batlisted. Uh, Envoy Extraordinary by William Golding. Boy in Darkness by Mervyn Peake. Consider Her Ways by John Wyndham. Published together for the first time. None of those stories would appear anywhere else. What a fascinating example of how literary status settles or is misappropriated over time that in 1956, those new authors, William Golding, Mervyn Peake, John Wyndham, could appear together and be seen as a group. Now, they all have different attributes and strengths, but, David, I I wonder whether you think, to bring this round, what is it about Wyndham that people could read now and really, really find relevant? Well, the strange thing about Wyndham, which is unique and completely different to Mervyn Peake, for example, is... I think he, 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 he's so simple and I think his simplicity linguistically in terms of the storytelling, how slim line, none, they're all tiny. You can read them in an afternoon if you really want to. You can't do that with most of Mervyn Peake. And it, and I think that's co- I think that. Indeed you can. <laughs> Amen, amen, yeah. brother. Yeah. We just made that you. episode. <laughs> yes. Thank you. So I think it's cost him because, and I think it's yeah. cost him in the way that um, the, the, the rise of literary fiction in perhaps the sense that literary fiction should be about something that is around the you know style of language, linguistic, yeah. and and his utterly pared back, almost made for movies feel to him. I think movies haven't helped him strangely because I think it feels like he's just writing prototypes for screenplays almost, and it's unfair on him because actually the ideas are really remarkable. Today, their control reaches out into space. Tomorrow, will it girdle the globe? There's nothing you can do to stop us. Leave us alone. 
afraid that's all we have time for. So leave us alone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's time for us to say farewell to Midwich, its weird children, and to offer huge thanks to David for helping us to reevaluate a book which I think we all feel deserves its place as a modern British classic. To Nikki for connecting all our voices in an invisible but non-creepy way. And to Unbound. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that. To Unbound for lending us the canary. Oh, you can download all 166 previous episodes. Plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for less than the price of a round in the stone and scythe, lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month. Our very own weekend cottage where we three take bracing woodland walks, gossip in the pub with disgruntled locals and talk about the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. I so hoped you were going to say where, for the price of whatever, you get to join our hive mind <laughs> as we, we yeah. as we repel all borders. A uh, lot of listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's Parish Pump Notice Board contains the following names. Jennifer Milo Shook, Jacob Wunsch, Andrew Hetherington, Sean Berry. And we're also delighted to welcome... Susie Koo Wilson to our Guild of Master Storytellers, the highest tier wow, in the backlist of film. Thank you for your thank generosity you so to all our patrons. Huge thanks for enabling us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. We'd like to thank David for coming on in our blind date. Not blind date in a Triffids way. That would be weird and, <laughs> and strange. David, thank oh, you so much. This has been brilliant. I, I found this completely revelatory going back to these mm. books and thinking about them in a contemporary oh. context. So thank you for giving us the excuse to I've do that. I've absolutely loved it. And should you choose to keep it in, I, I found out that it wasn't the Isle of Man, but it was a, <laughs> it was a place where they will be unmolested. They're, unmolested they're taken away by air to a place that they and i must have strangely and freudianly taken the isle of man from um from the triffids as you were saying yeah well isle of white maybe i don't know <laughs> which which one of the isles i imagined it as the um, isle is, of man it's funny isn't it is there anything else you would like to say about john Wyndham before we we wrap up it's just at the end of a long journey because i wasn't sure it was a long time thinking i'd like this would be amazing on screen i ought to have said you know i didn't see the film for years the film was not a big thing around when I was a teenager, you see. So for me to have made the journey from the book to eventually the screen and then to come and talk about the book again, it's just been a huge pleasure. I do think he's a very idiosyncratic British classic talent. Yes, I think it's very helpful to think of him in the bracket of Golding and Peak while yep. being nothing like either of those writers. But we, we should pay him the same respect. We, we should, think. because... At, I think they were right. In the movies, Alfred Hitchcock is considered the greatest filmmaker, sort of, of all time. And he is he's exactly the same. Lean, mean, malicious at times. But the, the rigour is unparalleled. And some of the thinking is is, is magnificent. And Wyndham, for yeah, me, yeah. has that, 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 that very English cut-glass yeah. leanness. Beautiful. All right, well, listen, everybody. Thanks, David. Thanks, John and Nicky. We'll see you in a fortnight. If for some reason you don't know what happens uh, at the end of the Midwich Cuckoos, don't <laughs> listen to this bit coming up. <laughs> okay, but otherwise, we'll see you next Bye. time. See you Bye. Guys.
If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.